0: Hey, good morning, everybody here in person. Good morning to see everybody online. Uh, it's a special time of year. I uh, mentioned that it's uh, Palm Sunday today, and so we had a little bit of celebration in the uh, uh, the worship time. Uh, but we are actually been in this series in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we've been journeying with Jesus the King to the cross, and so we're actually a little farther ahead in the timeline of Holy Week than Palm Sunday. Uh, today, we're gonna get to the spot where actually we're leading up to the place where Jesus is crucified. Over the past 2,000 years, the cross has been a central symbol of Christian hope. Uh, We have crosses in our churches, like the one behind me. We wear crosses as jewelry or on our clothing. Uh, That can seem normal to us today, but we may not realize the original jarring nature of the cross as a Christian logo. Long before the cross was a religious symbol, it was the ultimate symbol of Roman power. Through the cross, the Romans declared, we are in charge here, and this is what happens to people that get in our way. They had crucified thousands of rebel Jews during the days when Jesus was a boy growing up in Galilee. Uh, They would later crucify thousands more in the conquest of Jerusalem, which happened in AD seventy. And in between those two significant events, they crucified many others, often without much pretext. The Roman Empire boasted of bringing justice and peace to the world, but the truth is they systematically cut down anyone, uh, often by ruthless methods, in, uh, ruthless methods uh, including crucifying those that opposed them. And yet somehow, in the midst of this, this cross, this tool of extreme brutality, became a central symbol of Christian hope. How in the world did that happen? There are a number of ways that you could answer that question. Here's the one that we're going to look at uh, today. At the cross, we see the intersection of human brokenness and divine sovereignty. It's at the cross that we see this crossing, this intersection of human brokenness and Divine So we're going to read about in a few moments, horrific things were done to an innocent man. And still somehow, that worked towards God's plan of rescuing us and beginning to set all things right in the world again. Listen to how theologian N.T. Wright describes this dynamic. It says, the way in which Jesus defeated evil was consistent with the deeply subversive nature of his own kingdom announcement. He defeated evil... By letting it do its worst to him. Amazing. That's what we're going to look at this morning in our passage. There were awful, broken responses to Jesus, terrible things done to this man, but in the midst of that, all, God's redemptive purposes, God's redemptive plans were accomplished. Once want you go ahead and grab a Bible. If you're here in person, you can pull one of those out from underneath your chair. Uh, we're going to be on page 695. If you're online, you prefer to pull out your favorite electronic device, you can turn to Mark 15. And while you're finding that, let me catch you up on where we are in this Holy Week narrative. Okay? So, again, we're a little farther into the week. It's actually the eve of the Passover, the most prominent of the Jewish festivals Jesus gathered his closest friends, eating what we call the Last Supper. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. Um, And then after that meal, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. It was there that Judas betrayed Jesus, and Jesus was arrested. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark 15. Let's start in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, they led him away, they handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. We'll stop there for now. Throughout his gospel, we've been talking about this throughout our series here in the Gospel of Mark, Mark pushes this question, is Jesus the king? Is Jesus the king? And then he details how people responded to Jesus. Here's how that comes up in Mark chapter 15. I don't think Pilate cared one bit about the religious qualms that the chief priests had regarding Jesus, but he did want to consider if Jesus was a threat to Roman power. The Gospel of Luke goes into more detail, describing how the chief priests accused Jesus of undercutting the Romans, opposing paying taxes to Caesar, and claiming to be the Messiah, in other words, claiming to be a king. And so it's in that context in verse 2 that uh, that Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's wondering, are you a political leader? Are you a threat to me? Now, Jesus doesn't give a denial or an affirmation to Pilate's question, or he can even say Jesus gives both a denial and an affirmation. <laughs> you know, it's much like the, the answer that he gave in Mark chapter 12, It's Jesus says to Pilate's question, you have said so. It's much like in, in Mark chapter 12, where people would ask Jesus, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? How did Jesus answer? How did Jesus answer? Like, he said... Give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what's God. It's like he, he's, he's, he's talking about this from a whole different angle. And so when Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews, Jesus could have said, no, I'm not a political leader. I'm just like this spiritual person. You know, I'm, I'm this one that's bringing peace and joy and love and happiness to humanity. <laughs> but he doesn't say that. Likewise, Jesus also doesn't claim to be a political leader in the mold that Pilate was expecting. Jesus absolutely was challenging the power of Rome, but he was doing it in the most subversive and surprising way possible. And that's one of the reasons why, as verse 5 states, Pilate was amazed. Jesus didn't fit into the box that Pilate had for leaders. Jesus had tremendous power and authority, but his leadership came from a place outside any human category. And so with that in mind, here's a question for us to consider. How do you, how do I, how do we tend to put Jesus in a box? We all do this at times, right? You know, where we try to shape Jesus into our mold rather than receiving him for who he really is. How do you do that? Here's two biggies that I see in our society today. It's easy for us to approach Jesus like a spiritual advisor, you know, he's like our favorite um, uh, self-help author or inspirational speaker where we listen and we learn and we kind of take in whatever we really like from that person and then we just kind of discard or, or put aside what we maybe don't agree with. Here's another one. We try to leverage Jesus in hopes of achieving our personal or political or cultural gains. But Jesus is not going to be stuffed in any box like those. He is a king, but he is unlike any king that we have ever seen. Okay, let's continue on in our passage. Now we're on page 696 and explore some of the responses that people had to Jesus. As Pilate talked with Jesus, he knew that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, Jesus hadn't been leading revolt or stirring up dissension. And so Pilate found himself in a bind. If he just let Jesus go, a riot was going to break out. But he also didn't want to condemn Jesus without cause. And so Mark 15 describes that there was a way out of that bind, potentially. At the Passover festival, a prisoner could be released by the people's request. Pick up in verse 6. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Verse 9, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of self-interest, literally, this means out of malevolent envy, (laughs) that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Okay, yeah, pause there for a moment. Like We're going through this like, bit by bit so you can get this scene in your mind. The crowd cried out for the release of Barabbas, an insurrectionist that had committed murder. That's how verse 7 describes him. Barabbas was this quintessential Jewish zealot, someone that had determined to usher in a version of God's kingdom by defeating Roman power by Roman means, repaying pagan violence with holy violence. And in asking for Barabbas' release, the deep-seated self-interest of the religious leaders and the culpability of the crowds was made evident. Continuing, verse 12. So Pilate asked them, what should I do then? What should I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Again, let us think in. When Jesus showed up, preaching about, demonstrating the goodness of God's kingdom, he was rejected. This is the first of several broken responses to Jesus that we see here in Mark 15. Jesus was rejected. The crowds rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus and they wielded the power of Rome against him, crying out, crucify him. This theme of rejection appears in numerous places in the gospel. The gospel of John describes that Jesus came to his own and yet his own did not receive him. That's in John 1. In John 6, after Jesus spoke about what it means to be his disciples, the people replied, this is too hard. This is a hard teaching. Like, who can accept it? And it goes on to say that many turned their backs and quit following Jesus. Here's another example of this theme of rejection written in the book of Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born. When Isaiah got a prophetic glimpse of the future Messiah, This is what he wrote in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And yet, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Isaiah 53 would be a great passage to spend some time in this week, Holy Week, leading up to Good Friday and Easter. It's the Old Testament um, fulfillment, or the foreshadowing, rather, of what we see fulfilled in Mark's gospel. As Isaiah prophesied, Jesus was despised and he was rejected. He was mistreated and misunderstood. And yet it was that rejection that became the way for us to be restored to God. So amazing, this connection between human brokenness and God working out his plan to rescue all of humanity. Back to Mark 15, verse 14. Pilate asked, why? Like, what crime has Jesus committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged, and he handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate asks, "Like, what has he done? You know, what crime has he committed?" And they don't even answer Pilate's question. It's, it's maybe a way of saying, "Jesus may be in, innocent, but we want him dead." It's like this, this substitution. Here's the innocent one. Here's the guilty. Switch them. Substitute them. Put the innocent one where the guilty one is. Put the guilty one where the innocent one is. How much more clear could Mark's gospel be about what Jesus' death is all about? Jesus was willing to take our place. He took our sins upon himself, He took evil of self upon himself, He took our punishment, He died so that we might live. It's this switch, this substitution, that Jesus allowed to happen. Friends, the story of Mark 15 is also our story. You know, maybe we haven't rejected Jesus in as dramatic a fashion as the crowds did, but as Isaiah 53 says, all of us, every one of us, have strayed away. We've all left God's path to follow our own, and yet, God has laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. The innocent man takes our guilt, (laughs) and us as the guilty, somehow we get to go free. This amazing exchange, so, so tremendous. And so as we think about the story of Mark 15, we think of our own story. It's so important for us to take in how this can speak to so many situations. For a number of you, You are super familiar with your own weakness, with your own vulnerability, with your own brokenness. And like for you, the big barrier to really experiencing God is wondering, could there ever be grace for me? Like, have I messed up? Have I missed it so bad that I'm always just going to be on the outside? You know, maybe you can like get in a little bit. You're like, man, I I, I can't get really close though. Maybe I can like barely get in the door, (laughs) but I can't really be welcomed in. Is there grace for me? I just want to tell you emphatically, the cross of Jesus says yes. The cross of Jesus says yes, there is grace for you. This is why Jesus came, to have us as the guilty ones be set free and say it is all done. It is finished. Now for others, your first reaction could be some resistance. You might think like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as those folks or you know, compared to them, I'm, you know. But here's the question, like, how good is good enough? You know, if, if all the things you've done and said could be flashed up here on the screen, <laughs> would you just hope that, like, the good things outweigh the bad? But what do you do with the things you regret, the hurt you've caused others, like, the ways that you've strayed? Friends, every one of us, <laughs> every one of us needs a Substitute. Every one of us needs to be forgiven. And the good news is that all of us can experience this tangible, amazing grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's continue on in verses 16 to 20. Verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. And then they led them out, led him out to crucify him. This section details the second broken response we see from people, that the soldiers mock Jesus. I tell you, as I've been preparing this message the last few weeks, these, these few verses have been the ones I just keep coming back to, like even as I'm reading it today, I just, I just like get stirred up, like, "Oh my gosh, here it is. Like, I haven't been able to shake the contrast between what Jesus deserves and the way that the soldiers treated him. The mocking, like, it was relentless. In ridicule, they took symbols of royalty and they placed them on Jesus. And they called out, Hail, King of the Jews, not in honor, but as a joke and an insult. And then we get to verse 19, which reads this way in the New Living Translation. The soldiers struck Jesus on the head with a reed stick. They spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. Jesus, the one worthy of all worship, the king of kings, the lord of lords, was repeatedly humiliated by the soldiers, and items that could have been expressions of honor were instead used as expressions of mockery. Two thoughts have stuck with me as I've been just pouring over these verses over and over again. First one is this. It's like it's in the context of worship that this mocking happens. Friends, you and I, we were created to worship. This is part of being made in the image of God. We were made to be worshipers. You know, you might think I'm only referring to the music that we sing at a church service, but worship is so much more than that. We've been created with the capacity for awe and wonder to appreciate beauty and pleasure. Like those are just some of the transcendent experiences that point to this truth that we were made to worship. And whatever we give our hearts to has amazing power in our lives. I think about this like being like a tether, like from a winch. Like we latch onto something and it's like this slow thing, like whatever we worship, we are just constantly being drawn towards. The word worship literally means to ascribe worth, worth And what we are saying with our mouths and with our lives when we worship is like, this is what has value, this is what is most important. Again, as people created in God's image, we have been infused with immeasurable worth. And we've been created to offer that worth back to something, even someone, that is beyond ourselves. I want you to catch this. Like There is tremendous, tremendous potency of our lives. We have the potential to unlock amazing goodness by what we worship, or we have the ability to do significant harm. I mean, think back to the soldiers in, in Mark 15, right? Like, they, they, they worship Roman power. They relish their ability to abuse others. That was what was most central to them. It is so sad, but it is true. Now, our misplaced worship is probably not to that extreme, but we still need to choose. We need, still need to consider. Like, what are we giving ultimate Authority to in our lives what's going to capture our affections who has our allegiance That leads me to the second thought I've been just stuck on this past week This is this challenge don't waste your worship You got to choose What's most important in your life Don't waste your worship Don't waste it I sometimes find it helpful to think about daily choices I have being like currency like if I'm given a deposit every day of my life. And my life, it has tremendous value. I get to choose how I spend it. You get to choose how you spend your life. And just like I don't want to waste money, I don't want to waste my life. Another way to say that is I don't want to waste my worship. There's tremendous potency <laughs> of what I give myself to. I want to give that to the very best things. I don't want to waste that. But some days, like, if I'm honest, I can misspend my life in people-pleasing. I can misplace what's important by grasping on to earthly security. I can let challenges that I'm facing get bigger than the God that I serve. I can, I can in the midst of fatigue or, or hurt, I can drift towards becoming detached. And so regularly, I have to come back to this spot of saying, Jesus, you are the only one that is worthy of my worship. You're the only one. Your priorities, your way of life, I want those to matter most to me. And usually that finishes with a like, oh, God help me because I can't do that on my own. (laughs) Does that feel right to you? Friends, this is where we have to come back to. To make the most important things the most important things. And so for you, like what do you worship? What do you ascribe worth to? Practical way that you can consider this, even this week, is to reflect on how you spend your time and your energy. You know, what do you think and dream about? What do you shell out like literal cord hard cash on, right? Like, that's a way that we show what's important to us. You might even pay attention to what you tend to get offended by. That can be like this sign of, like, this is something that's really important and it got messed with by somebody. What trips you up? All of those things can be signals to show you what's really important to you. I can't say this strong enough. Friends, your life has immeasurable value. Choose wisely, don't waste your worship. There's amazing power in what you attach yourself to, both for yourself and the impact of your life on others. Okay, let's read the last section of Mark for today. Mark 15, 21 to 33. It says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And then they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Come down from the cross and save yourself. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land. Until three in the afternoon. In the section, we see a third broken response to Jesus in this passage. That the chief priests and the bystanders wasn't just mockery, like it was taunting. (laughs) It's like bullying, right? Incessant. It's intense. They hurled insults at Jesus. They ridiculed them. Particularly their taunts were focused on Jesus' power. You know, to them to see Jesus on the cross was the ultimate proof that Jesus was a powerless leader. Verse 31, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Verse 32, prove yourself. Come down from the cross that we may believe. They couldn't grasp how different Jesus' authority was from what they had seen in just mere worldly circles, worldly powers. They expected a leader to rise up to defeat evil, Jesus' way was exactly the opposite. Jesus laid his life down. Here's how he described that back in Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The way that Jesus exerted his power seemed upside down to the people of his day. And it can seem upside down to us too. I mean, we can want a leader, a rescuer that takes on evil and walks out unscathed. But Jesus' way was completely different. He defeated evil by letting it do its worst to him. He was rejected, and he was mocked, and he was ridiculed. He yielded to being falsely accused, condemned, and executed on a Roman cross. And yet, it was through all of that, this comes full circle, that that was how God accomplished his divine, his sovereign plan of rescue. God's redemptive plan was accomplished through the cross of Christ want we'll to touch on two last items. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about this at Good Friday. Uh, today's a lot like a little precursor to uh, what we're going to do on Friday. But two, two thoughts from this last little bit about God and his redemptive plan being accomplished. First is this. Jesus, in the way uh, that he goes at this, Jesus on the cross, Jesus is the way to come home and back into God's presence. Verse 37 and 38, we read, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is what we were thinking about earlier in the service. A few verses earlier, the bystanders were taunting Jesus, saying, Jesus, weren't you the one that said that you'd destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? That actually was something that Jesus had said, but he meant something completely different by it. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical building of the temple. He was referring to himself, of saying, my body is going to be destroyed, but it's going to be restored. (laughs) It's going to be rebuilt on the third day. That is what we're going to celebrate next weekend at Easter. But starting with his death, Jesus was opening a way back up, opening up a way back into God's presence. Right, if Hebrews goes into more detail about what was taking place at that moment of Jesus' death. This is Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 22. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. You know, the other day, we were having our staff meeting on Tuesdays. We, we'd get together and kind of plan out the week, and oftentimes, um, we'll take some time to just uh, just pray. And um, one of the things that we did was took this these few verses from Hebrews 10, and so we lead up into this time of Jesus uh, in remembering his sacrifice on the cross and the fact that he was risen from the dead. We took a few moments the other day in this, and we're talking about Jesus unlocking, like literally tearing open a brand new way into God's presence. And we just sat for that with a moment. We thought about how we can like boldly come, not sheepishly or ashamedly, but like we can come right into God's presence. We even imagined for a few moments, like, what level of relationship do you need to just like walk into somebody's house? You know folks like that? Like family, friends, like Who do you have enough relationship with? Like, you don't have to knock to go in. Friends, that is what Jesus has opened up to us. He says, come on in. Your family, your friends, I've made a way for you to experience this goodness of God's kingdom and his presence. You can come right in. Jesus opened this way for us to come home, back into God's presence. One last item. We get to choose how we respond. Again, this goes back to Mark's constant theme. We get to choose how we respond. Look at verse 39. When the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Contrast that. Like so many characters in today's passage missed who Jesus was. The chief priests, the religious leaders, they didn't see it. The crowds, the bystanders, they missed it. Pilate couldn't understand it. The soldiers used what was true about Jesus against him. For all we know, this centurion, this Roman military officer, he could have been a part of that abuse that was unleashed on Jesus. At the very least, he was likely observing overseeing those things under his charge. But in the end, this centurion, he is the one that gets it. He is the one who sees Jesus for who Jesus really is. Someone with power and authority that go way beyond this world, he sees Jesus as the one true king. And I can think this one verse encapsulated so much of what the Gospel of Mark is all about. Chapter after chapter, Mark has been pressing, presenting Jesus as the king with the kingdom and challenging us to respond. Friends, may we have the wisdom to see, the courage to confess, this man truly was the son of God. Every weekend when we gather, you know, we sing to God, uh, we, we look at God's word, uh, we proclaim this message of Jesus, and how we finish up here at the Vineyard every week is that we pray for one another. And so I want to just give you just a few prayers um, that I was praying myself, even just leading up into this morning, and some things that maybe you can latch on to, of saying, this is what's in my heart uh, today, and we'll do that in ministry time here in just a moment. Your prayer might look like this, sound like this today. Jesus, I I want to see you for who you really are, instead of shaping you into something of my own making. You know, maybe for you that, that's like a first-time confession. <laughs> a first-time realization where you like haven't considered Jesus of having really any authority in your life or minimal authority. And for you today, it's like putting Jesus right at the center. Handing over the keys, (laughs) you know, like giving Jesus, saying, like, Jesus, you're in charge. Committing your life to Christ, saying it's not my life anymore. Jesus, I want you to lead the way. Others of you, you might need to quit trying to put Jesus in a box that he doesn't fit in. Like you've been trying to see Jesus in one way and realizing that he is totally different than any human category that we would try and put him into. Here's another prayer. I want to come boldly before God. Like Hebrews 10 talks about, Like there's a boldness, there's an unashamedness that can, that can come, that we are opened up to because of what Jesus has done. God, I want to know your presence. I want to experience you. You know, there could be a need that you have. Hebrews 4 talks about how um, we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, there we will find grace to help us when we need it most. And so this morning, like what do you need? (laughs) What do you come into this time? Like where do you need God's help? Where do you need God's grace? You can come boldly before God today. I think another prayer is this, God I want wisdom on how to spend my life. Again, there is tremendous potency (laughs) of your life. How you spend it matters. Maybe you could be facing a major decision. It could be that you need to make some adjustments where you know that you've been focusing on lesser things, and you don't want to do that anymore. These are some prayers. Maybe you've got other prayers that you want to pray. Maybe there's some other things going on in your life. as we go back into some worship, as we pray for one another, this is the time to respond. This is the time to say, "Jesus, you've got my all. I need your help." Would you come be the true king, the one true king, in and through my life? Why don't you go ahead and stand up? I'll work, welcome the worship team back up. And uh, let me pray for us as we, we close and uh, prepare to pray for one another. Oh, God, there's so much to take in today. Um, Lord, I just even ask for your grace. Um, As we read this dramatic um, unfolding of events that took place 2,000 years ago, God, but it has a just a present reality to us even right in this moment. Jesus, you, the sinless one, the innocent one, were bruised and beaten, (laughs) forsaken and condemned, and you just you did that all for us. not just from our hearts, like we just want to say thank you. (laughs) You have our all. You gave it all for us. And God, we want to respond and just say, you can have all my all. Jesus, I want to see you for who you are. Jesus, I want wisdom on how I spend my life. Jesus, I need your help in in this area, that area of my life. Would you come even right now? Help me to just yield myself to you. Jesus, be my king. Be the one that deserves it all. If you're on our prayer ministry team, if you want to start to make your way up here, um, we just want to provide some space. Um, Worship team's going to lead us in some more songs. And for a number of you, like to to put words in song to the things that are in your heart, like that is like the potency for you today. Um, For others of you, maybe it's like bringing that very real need that you have, and just saying, I'm not gonna go at this on my own. Jesus, would you be the one that rules and reign over this area of my life? Yeah, just come Lord. Give us courage. Give us wisdom, God. Help us to respond to you. Thank you, God. So again, worship team's gonna lead us in some worship. We got our prayer folks up here, um, and just invite you, as we continue here, bring these things before God. Give yourself fully to God today, and let's lean in even further to this journey that Jesus has, the King leading to the cross. Thanks for being here this morning.